You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. John Cunningham from Queen's University, Belfast. His paper was entitled an aftergame at Irish, Clement Walker and the Conquest of Ireland in 1649. Uh, so this paper is concerned with a short pamphlet uh, that was published anonymously in London in uh, 1649. And I've, I've just got a slide of the, the title, page, uh, title page for you, an aftergame at Irish, or the history of Ireland since the time of King Henry II, who first sent over an army uh, thither. There are at least two copies of this surviving, one in the National Library of Ireland and one in the Yale University Library, uh, neither of which, so far as I'm aware, have previously attracted any attention, and it's not on um, Ebo either uh, at the minute. So what I'm going to do in this paper really is just to explore the content of the pamphlet a little bit and try to situate it in the context provided by politics and war um, in these islands uh, circa 1649. So just to begin then with a comment on what an after game at Irish actually was. Uh, Irish was a game that resembled backgammon, uh, but where the after game played at the end could very much uh, alter the outcome. Uh, there's one uh, sort of detailed description of it from this book from 1674, uh, Cotton's Complete Gamester. I'm not going to read all of that for you, but just the first line, which you probably can't see, uh, Irish is an ingenious game and requires a great deal of skill to play it well, especially the after game. And towards the end, in the last paragraph, for an after game, I know not what instructions to give you. You must hear, trust in your own judgment and the chance of the dice. So that's a description of the after game. Um, if any of you want to try it, um, feel free. Um, more directly relevant for my purposes in, term, in, the, in connection with this sort of um, description is the way that John Davies used it in 1612 in his True Discovery um, as a metaphor. And for Davies, the, the after game or the game at Irish was a way of, of summing up the shifts in the balance of power between Irish and English in Ireland post 1169. Uh, so just uh, again to take a few examples of that, you can see it in bold there. So he's talking about uh, the late medieval period, uh, then the estate of things like a game at Irish was so turned about as the English, which hoped to make a perfect conquest of the Irish, were by them perfectly and absolutely conquered. Um, early 17th century then for Davies this game is turned again the, the second quote there is probably the most famous line uh, from his book about how uh, there will be no difference or distinction but the Irish sea betwixt us uh, the next line is less commonly quoted and thus we see a good conversion and uh, the Irish game is turned again so that's the sort of way it's being used uh, by contemporaries who are um, writing history and uh, this is the way that uh, the pamphlet that I want to talk about today is um, is using it and it's, it seems that it's, it's the idea is borrowed from um, Davies. So the other in question was uh, Clement Walker, a man who doesn't seem to have had any uh, direct connections with Ireland and who uh, most of you will never have heard of. 
Uh, Walker was a politician and a pamphleteer best known for a work called A History of Independency. Uh, this is a, the title page of a 1660, 1660 edition, but it was initially published in three parts between 1648 and 1651. So the History of Independency was an uncompromising attack on radical independence in the English Parliament and its army. The men who rose to power in the late 1640s and who eventually oversaw the execution of King Charles I. In the 20th century, Clement Walker's work or his publications helped to inform a lively historiographical debate concerning the parties in Parliament during the 1640s. Uh, one of the participants in that debate, David Underdown, wrote that, quote, circumstances made Walker a Presbyterian, but he was a confessedly Erastian and anti-clerical one. Now, Walker had been elected as an MP for Wells in 1646 and later excluded at Pride's Purge in December uh, 1648. And the final two years of his life were spent as a prisoner in the Tower of London, where he died in October 1651. Despite the claim made in the title page of his after game at Irish that this was a history of Ireland since the 12th century, it is actually just eight pages long and it's very far from offering any sort of proper history of the previous five centuries. Walker's main preoccupation was with the events of 1649. His chief purpose was to assert that the abolition of the monarchy had revolutionary consequences for the long-established Anglo-Irish constitutional relationship. This was so because, according to Walker, that relationship couldn't exist without the crown. He sought to use aspects of the Irish past to emphasise the centrality of the monarchy in underpinning and legitimising England's long engagement with and colonisation of its neighbour island. This line of argument allowed Walker to attack the new Republican regime in England and to question the rump parliament's claim to sovereignty over Ireland. More immediately, Walker's pamphlet was intended to weaken support for Cromwell's imminent military expedition and thereby to boost uh, the prospect of a royalist recovery in the three kingdoms. An after game at Irish then was a firmly anti-conquest uh, piece of writing and it certainly deserves attention alongside other contemporary examples of such work which have tended to attract attention in particular from Marxists and more particularly uh, scholars of the leveller movement. Uh, so how can we prove that Walker wrote this after game then as it's published anonymously? Well, he was responsible for a number of other publications between 1643 and 51, most of which were a result of collaboration with his friend and the fellow lawyer, William Prynne. Uh, he sometimes used the pseudonym uh, Theodorus Virax, uh, I don't know if the NSA leaker Edward Snowden had this in mind when he adopted Virax as his codename uh, more recently, probably uh, not. Um, the second part of Walker's History of Independence was published in the autumn of 1649. The title of that was uh, Anarchica Anglicana. And this was the book that landed him in prison where he was to stay until he died. And I just want to show you an illustration. Uh, you may have seen this before. This is Oliver Cromwell supervising the cutting down of the Royal Oak of Britain, which is adorned with Magna Carta and Cook's Institutes and various other, um, various other things. Now, there's, there's various circumstantial pieces of evidence linking Walker to the aftergame, but it's from this particular book that we have the only um, uh, firm piece of evidence. Um, it's, it's a cross-reference to and a marginal reference on page 198. Um, at that point in Anarchica Anglicana, uh, Walker is turning his attention to recent Irish events. Um, and I'll, I'll just I'll need to talk you through this. So the the paragraph is this one that begins here. But he writes, I formally told you of an underhand combination between the domineering independent party here and Owner O'Neill. And then the cross-reference in the margin is to see an aftergame at Irish. So there he's, he's pointing the reader to where he's formally told them about this. Um, and this, uh, this really is 
I think, a pretty solid acknowledgement that, that he has written that he has written uh, the other work. Now, Owner O'Neill, as you surely know, had returned from Flanders in 1642 to play a prominent role in the Irish War and in, in the factional politics of the Catholic Confederation. Um, he had refused to join uh, Ormond's Royalist Alliance in 1649, and instead he had agreed a truce with uh, the parliamentarian commander, Colonel George Monk, um, in the early summer of 1649. Uh, this agreement was born of desperation on both sides, and it was revealed in various London news books by June uh, of, of 1649. Uh, so for Clement Walker, looking at this development in Ireland, this was just another example of the Republican government's apparent hypocrisy examples of which fill the pages of his history of independency. Uh, the late king's enemies had repeatedly accused him of complicity in the Irish rebellion, and now having executed him, they had turned around and allied themselves uh, with, with Owner O'Neill. Um, so this, this was provoking a lot of controversy then in, um, in, in mid-1649, and this is what uh, Walker is seeking to draw attention to. Despite the secrecy in terms of O'Neill's agents dealing with the parliament, Walker is able to identify a few of them in the aftergame. He mentions the, the Vicar General O'Reilly, who was subsequently Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, and uh, the priest MacGagan. And he went on to talk more about the O'Neill episode in, 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 this, in this work, Anarchia Anglicana. So it's, it's this prospect then in mid-1649 of the O'Neills in Ulster allying with Cromwell that um, provokes Walker to producing this anonymous pamphlet. It's really for him an, an opportunity for a polemical attack that's simply too good um, it's too, it's too good to pass up. Um, additional evidence for Walker's authorship can be adduced from the style and the content. He's a very lively writer, very very bombastic, and just absolutely loves throwing insults. Um, David Underdown described his history of independence. He has a work of great gusto, magnificently biased, full of delicious gossip and innuendo, a superb piece of injustice. So Walker's aftergame matches that description. He, he uh, criticises schismatics and sectaries in England, uh, the Anabaptists, the schismatical synagogue, who are accused of um, rapine, murder and treason, atheism, impiety, pretty much everything you can throw at people. Um, Walker is throwing it at the independence. He decries their abolition of monarchy as a utopian act. Uh, he mocks the humble saints for their hypocritical meekness and accuses them of aspiring to imitate John of Leiden and uh, Nipper Dolling. So this sort of thing can be found right across Walker's work from, from his history of independency um, and into the after game as well. So how does he use the Irish past then? Um, having briefly, he briefly references some ancient British kings. We see quite a lot mentioned in works looking to some extent, at the Irish past. So Edgar gets a mention, King Arthur gets a mention. He doesn't take any of that particularly seriously. It's just by, by way of introduction. Um, what he does do is focus quite a lot of his attention on the, on the 12th century, um, on the Anglo-Norman conquest. And he, he picks out a particular episode from there and sort of puts it up there as the key moment in Irish history, which is not really a, a convincing argument at all, but that's what he... Um, decides to do. The, the, the episode in question is, is something that happens when Raymond Fitzgerald or Raymond Le Gros uh, landed near Waterford in 1170. Uh, there followed a battle in which uh, Le Gros uh, won a stunning victory over the Irish. And then a number of Irish prisoners are taken. Le Gros pleads, pleads for clemency, but his men say, no, we have to massacre, we have to massacre these prisoners. So against Raymond Fitzgerald's uh, counsel, 
um, this large group of Irish prisoners is massacred. Uh, this was an episode that was recorded uh, by Geraldus Cambrensis, and Walker, in turn, when he's talking about it, cites uh, Meredith Hamner's uh, chronicle, a work first published by Sir James Ware in 1633. So Walker picks out this massacre from 1170 then, uh, and really links it to 1641. Um, what does he say about it? He says, uh, but of this I am confident the many defections and relapses that kingdom had had, whereby we have lost both men and treasure, had rather happened as a judgment of God for the cruelty of the soldiers under the first adventurers uh, formerly mentioned. Now this, as I said, it's a bit of a strange argument to make, but this is, this is the line that Walker takes, that everything post-1170 that has happened to the English in Ireland that is bad is somehow retribution uh, for... Um, for this episode. So it's quite a feat of historical reductionism, I think. Uh, in seeking to play down the significance of the 1641 massacres, both the real ones and the alleged ones, uh, Walker was evidently attempting to foster a cross-confessional spirit of cooperation in defence of the royal cause. So trying to get people to look past 1641 by putting it in a, in a, in a longer-term um, context, uh, something which I, I don't think he does very well. Uh, so while he's doing that, so highlighting that massacre, he's also consistently playing up the royal title to Ireland and, and connecting English control of Ireland with the crown. So he stresses how the Irish have submitted to Henry II, how they've submitted to King John and Richard II, how they submitted to St. Ledger and Grey, and how lastly they submitted uh, to uh, King James I. So that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the, the strand of history which places the crown at the, at the centre of all this. Now, the relatively short text of an aftergame is dominated by a, a clamour of uh, ventriloquised voices that compete for the reader's attention. Um, so it can be broken into a couple of sections. The, the loudest voice is Walker claiming to be a displaced uh, Irish Protestant soldier who's been forced out by the rebellion. He also gives half a page to the Irish rebels' perspective, and he's, he has the impious Cromwellian then at the end uh, making their claims too. Uh, so Walker, posing as a displaced uh, Protestant, asserted uh, he asserted the new English entitlement to their possessions because the land had been granted to them by the Crown. So again, the, the Crown is crucial in terms of uh, new English claims to Irish land. Um, he, so he's talked a little bit about the title the kings had, and then he goes on. This is Walker pretending to be an Irish planter. If the king's title were not good, we'd have been late planters, have a wrong claim. If the kings were good, why do we debase that to advance our own? I hope we are not like the husbandmen in the gospel that would kill the heir that the vineyard might be their own. Therefore, I am of opinion with the, my fellow soldiers of the army, if we decall or if we behead our kings, uh, we English, as the case then stands, have no business there. So this, this, is, uh, this is Walker trying to bring the regicide uh, front and centre um, in, 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 uh, in that context. This passage then, this sort of voicing of, of a, a pseudo-Irish Protestant perspective uh, gives way to some of the arguments put forward by the, by the Confederate Catholics, uh, namely that they weren't rebels, they were loyal adherents of the crown, they had taken up arms for their own safety, and the execution of the king by English uh, schismatics and traitors was just the latest development that showed the Irish Catholic stance to be justified. Um, the aftergame also purported to give a Catholic royalist perspective on the Parliament's uh, dealings with Owen Roe O'Neill, uh, drawing a contrast between it and Elizabeth I's determined defeat of the, the most arch-traitor, Hugh O'Neill, uh, Earl of Tyrone, half a century earlier. 
Uh, Walker then finished his pamphlet by giving brief voice to the independence claims to be the humble saints, only to roundly denounce them, accusing them of atheism and impiety and so on. And this then was where the after game came into it. Although Cromwell's officers, most of whom had no Irish connections, were about to attempt a conquest, uh, Walker's arguing that it would be the old Protestant planters who would eventually um, come out on top. And this is what he has to say about it. Um, for an Irish game, you know, had an Irish trick. Uh, only a little wonder possess it. Many who have been old soldiers, officers and planters in Ireland, and they're yet kept from that service when so many others but half coddled have been admitted. Young gamesters may play the foregame with subtlety and craft, but the old officers and planters say on their favour they're most likely to contrive the after game with uh, best judgment and reason. Now, given what unfolded uh, later in the 1650s with the old Protestants recovering power and influence under Henry Cromwell, uh, Walker's comments about an after game in this uh, context uh, do, seem to be, uh, do seem to be prescient, and that's something that's explored in particular in the work of Toby Barnard, that recovery of power of, of the old Protestants. Now, while Walker's work, uh, Walker's other works, I should say, are keenly sought after by his contemporaries, and that's why he gets in trouble and why he ends up dying in prison, I have no indication at all how many or if anybody ever read this pamphlet or what they might have thought of it. Um, historians have argued that the mainstream English view held that Ireland simply belonged to England, uh, while Scotland might be allowed to go its own way in 1649 if it abandoned the Stuarts. Uh, breaking the link with Ireland was almost unthinkable. Only a small number of religious and political radicals could conceive of it. Uh, in the work of Christopher Durston, for example, such men are portrayed as enlightened and somehow ahead of their time. Uh, yet Walker's pamphlet complicates this picture somewhat. He clearly recognised that, that in England in 1649, both monarchy and claims to sovereignty based on kingly conquests, uh, the Norman yoke, were very much out of fashion. By extending this logic to Ireland, he was able to question the Rump Parliament's claim to dominion over the neighbouring Ireland. But the context provided by Walker's other works suggests that in reality he was very far from sincerely advocating some form of Irish independence from England. He, there isn't really any evidence that that's what he's aiming at. Rather, he's simply attempting to open up the Irish question in 1649 as a way of pursuing another useful attack against his enemies in the Parliament and the Army. And I'd like to suggest that this indicates a need to proceed with more caution when studying the other anonymous and fragmentary bits of evidence that survive um, writing against the conquest of Ireland, which are assumed to be written by levellers or by whoever it might be. Um, it, it's, it's very, very tricky to actually know what the sincere uh, intentions of a, of a writer is in that context. Um, I want to conclude uh, by briefly turning attention away from Walker's uh, pseudo-Irish Protestant perspective to an actual case where the impact of the regicide can be briefly glimpsed. I just want to talk for a minute or two about the writings of um, Sir William Parsons, who had been Lord Justice of Ireland in 1641 and who had been eventually pushed out of office in 1643 for his opposition to any compromise with the Confederate Catholics. The English Parliament's hard line against the Catholics meant that Parsons gravitated towards it. And in mid-1649, he was in London seeking parliamentary support for the publication of Examine Hibernia, a text that he had written. And this was another history of Ireland, but this was a much more um, substantial one, extending to about uh, 33,000 words. And it was designed to vindicate English claims to sovereignty and to justify reconquest. So it's one of the other pamphlets that's, that would have been produced. It wasn't printed, but it's in that immediate context that Clement Walker is writing in as well. It's just to give you a glimpse of 
what I'm talking about. There's two, there's two complete versions of this uh, manuscript that Parsons has revised in mid-1649, uh, one in the National Library and one in the British Library, which appears for various reasons to be a copy of the other one. Um, and then there's a partial uh, copy of it uh, in Edmund Borlase's papers, also in the British Library, and this seems to me to be a pre-1649. So you've got a, you've got a, a pre-regicide and a post-regicide version of the text. And I just want to um, just want to uh, point out some of these differences. And I want to argue that the differences we can see, the, the amendments that Parsons makes in his text after the regicide, uh, provide a more authentic flavour than Walker's pamphlet does of how an important section of the Irish Protestant community adjusted to the political realities of 1649, not by renouncing any claim to power and land in Ireland in the absence of the Crown, but instead by throwing in their lot with Cromwell as offering the best hope of defeating the Catholics and constructing a Protestant hegemony. So the pre-1649 version of Parsons' Examine Hibernia gives a lot of credit to the Stuart monarchs, uh, James I, Charles I, for their respective roles in reforming and civilising Ireland. And then the later version is almost writes that out. It just it minimises their contribution. Just to give you some examples of that, this is on the Ulster Plantation. So the first part is the pre-1640, the pre-1649 version, where it talks about James I in his deep and princely providence. And then in the, in the later version, it just becomes the king did command inquiries and surveys. So the, the deep and princely providence is gone. Uh, the next section there is about grants of land to the natives, where James I's fatherly care becomes the care of the English government. And the last part is about, again, on the Ulster Plantation, where His Majesty wisely and providently doing things just becomes the governors. So here's the, the shift that's taking place. You're writing the, writing the king um, out of history to some extent. And just some more examples of that. Um, so you've got a reference to the gracious regiment of King James and His Majesty that now reign it, and that becomes the English government. Um, and then where you get words like sacred, blessed, and pious, all of that is dropped, because that is not what you want to be calling Charles I in mid-1649. So the most sacred and benign princes become just the governor, the government of England. The blessed kings, the word blessed is left out. And this last bit is, is about aid to Protestants in 1641 who fled the rebellion, that they receive help at the hand and help of their most pious sovereign, Charles I, that's amended to read the hand and help of charitable superiors and friends. So I think that's a much more revealing than the version that Walker uh, tries to give us in terms of what Irish Protestants think um, of 1649 and the, and the regicide. And it also, I think, um, helps us to understand better why those Irish Protestants fare so well in the after game. They're able to make this able to make this adjustment. So there's no indication that uh, Walker's argument about the Anglo-Irish constitutional relationship gained any traction for the, among the Irish Protestants. The crown was gone, but for them Ireland remained united and knit to England. Enough of the Irish Protestants were willing, at least outwardly and temporarily, to throw off their loyalty to the Stuart personal monarchy, while holding to the conviction that English government over Ireland was entirely legitimate and an essential bulwark against their Catholic enemies. And when the Irish game turned again in 1660, they were able to come out on top uh, once more. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, 
visit the conference website at tutorstuartarnon.com.